Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Littleton Theatre. My name is Michael Jacobs. I'm visiting professor of politics at University College London, and it's my privilege to be chairing this evening's platform. Um, our subject this evening is Civil War, Ancient and Modern, uh, occasioned by the new production here at the Littleton of Carol Churchill's play Light Shining in Buckinghamshire, directed by Lindsay Turner. The play depicts some events of the Civil War. And we're sitting here, as you can see, on the set of the show. Um, for those of you who have not yet seen it, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that uh, this set is one of the stars of the show. <laughs> some of you, I think, may have seen it. Um, so to, uh, uh, to discuss uh, the subject of the Civil War and its modern political parallels and resonances, I'm delighted to introduce our guests this evening, Diane Perkis and John Rees. Uh, Diane Perkis is a fellow of Keble College, Oxford, and professor of English literature, although it's not entirely clear why, since she's uh, actually much better known as a historian in many ways, not to her students, I gather. Um, she's written a couple of books uh, on the Civil War. She's also an expert in, uh, among other things, early modern witchcraft, a history of food in Britain, about which I think you have another book uh, coming out soon, the dissolution of the monasteries and the court of uh, Henry VIII, and a number of other subjects. Um, She's also a published children's author, or rather one half of a published children's author, called Tobias Druitt, uh, the other half of whom is her 12-year-old son, Michael. Um, uh, in her adult guise, she's a frequent contributor to the newspapers and to Radio 4. John Rees is also a historian uh, uh, and a writer and political activist who's written several books, including uh, uh, a book called The Algebra of Revolution, um, which I haven't read but sounds very interesting. Um, uh, a book called Timelines, A Political History of the Modern World. Uh, a book co-authored on the Arab revolutions, the recent Arab revolutions, and uh, one on the peop a people's history of London. He's a co-founder of the Stop the War Coalition, which uh, opposed Britain's military interventions in Iraq and subsequently. And he's an organiser of the uh, People's Assembly Against Austerity, which brings together campaign groups uh, against public spending and welfare cuts. There's a national demonstration uh, next month in London. Uh, his doctorate was on the levellers and the Civil War, and he has a book about them coming out uh, soon. So very uh, 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 welcome, welcome to you both. Very good to have you. So perhaps I can start uh, with you, Diane. Um, this play is set in 1647, towards the end of the Civil War. Uh, for those members of the audience who learned their 17th century English history from 1066 and all that, <laughs> you will uh, remember that the Civil War was uh, fought between the Cavaliers, who were uh, wrong but romantic, and the Roundheads, who were right but repulsive. Um, uh, I wonder whether you could enlighten us uh, a little bit more than that on why we had a Civil War, which broke out in 1642, and who was it between? Well, I've been given four minutes to discuss a topic which most um, historians would say should take at least six hours. And even in that six hours, fresh civil wars would break out between the historians. Um, so if there are any historians in the audience, I'm expecting you to leap up and contradict me with every word I utter. Nonetheless, I shall have a bash. A bit of a summarized Proust competition here. Um, okay, during the, uh, the period of personal rule where Charles tried to rule alone without Parliament. Um, he did that because he found Parliament a nuisance. They kept annoying him by asking him questions that he didn't want to answer. Um, and so, um, as he ruled without it, the grievances of the people, uh, basically the greater gentry, property-owning people, um, really accumulated because normally Parliament was the venue for those grievances to be aired. But there were two particular grievances that really bothered the gentry during the personal rule. One was their increasing dread that the nation was going to become popish, that's Catholic, 
or close to Catholic under the leadership of Archbishop William Lord and because Charles I was very happily married to his extremely Catholic wife. That was grievance number one. Grievance number two was the greater gentry's reluctance to pay the new taxes that Charles had created in order to levy tax without the consent of Parliament. Uh, just so you know, it was, these taxes fell much more heavily on the greater gentry than they did on ordinary people. The 95% of the population who couldn't vote in parliamentary elections anyway did share the first concern, though, that England was becoming too popish. Um, and because that concern upped and upped and upped all the time that Charles refused to call Parliament to discuss it, and as big sweeping changes occurred in the Church of England, like the reintroduction of altars and the reintroduction of pretty pictures and statues, which were seen as dreadfully papistical, um, everyone became more and more anxious. And then Charles had a sequence of horribly bad pieces of luck, one after another. One was that he stupidly tried to test a piece of unpopular legislation on Scotland. <laughs> the lessons of history. Um, this was the Laudian prayer book, which brought back a lot of ritualistic things that everyone who was remotely Puritan greatly disliked and saw as papistical. Um, this led to two very unsuccessful wars with Scotland. The Scots, uh, breaking with the precedent under the Tudors, actually thrashed the English in both of them. So military failure, which is always a very bad thing for a monarch. Um, then the second appalling piece of luck um, was the Ulster Rising of November, 16, November, December 1641, which paranoid Puritans in London simply saw as the beginning of a huge Catholic war against Puritans in England, and they believed that the gutters of London would soon be running with blood and that an Irish-French army would land at any moment, and refugees from Cornwall and Devon actually started pouring into London in dread that this would happen in the next five minutes. Um, so that was bad. Uh, the press got very active, and moreover, Charles also had to resummon Parliament to fund a new war campaign against Scotland. That really let the cat out of the bag because it meant that the um, parliamentarians were able to address their grievances to him at tremendous length. This was called the Grand Remonstrance. Um, Charles wouldn't take their criticisms lying down. He attempted to arrest what he saw probably wrongly as the ringleaders of the parliamentarian opponents called the five members. Um, that put him in even worse odour and he was forced to free, flee London. And from that moment, he really had no choice but to see the parliamentarians basically as a rebellion against him. And he fatally raised his standard in um, Nottingham against them and from that moment was perceived to have declared war on his own people. Well, <laughs> excellent. So, so John, uh, we have the absolute power of the king not calling a parliament. We have schisms in the church, papism. As we'll see in the play, there's some millenarial Christianity going on here. This is a very 17th century conflict, isn't it? Are there really modern parallels and resonances? Yes, I think there are. I mean, some of those things that you, you mentioned, um, certainly on a global scale, were not free of uh, absolutist or tyrannical uh, regimes and democratic revolts um, against them. And uh, you might argue that some of the key things that the, the levellers were bothered about, um, John Lilburn, the leader of the levellers, became famous for um, protesting at prerogative courts, which were secret trials in which the only evidence that needed to be presented was a forced confession from the defendant themselves. Um, certainly secret trials with that kind of evidence are, are back in this, in this country, so there are those kind of uh, resonances. But I think there's one kind of very, very powerful um, resonance which is at the heart of this play, at the heart 
many would say, of the English Revolution, certainly at the heart of the Putney debates. And that is the opposition between um, popular democratic control of the government and private property. Yeah. In, the, in, the, in the debates, um, when Thomas Rainsborough, who's the, the, the leveller, um, hero of those debates, says that, you know, why don't we ex uh, extend the franchise? Why should it be that uh, the, the poor don't have a say in the government of a country? No man should put himself under the government of a country that he hasn't first had a hand in creating. Mm. The answer comes from Cromwell and Cromwell's son-in-law, Henry Ireton, who's the kind of brains behind the Cromwellian operation. He says, because I object to this, he says, because all that I say is because I have an eye to property. What you say will tend to anarchy. And that, and that counterposition was raised by the levellers, never answered um, in, those, in those debates, and that opposition between private property and democratic control is still, is still with us to this day. That's what the debate about the corporations not paying taxes is about. That's what the fate of the current Greek government is about. Mm. Should it be the democratic will of the Greek people, or should it be corporate and banking um, interests reflected through the Troika? Do you want to come back? Um, just a tiny bit. Um, you skipped right on to the levellers, and the point that I wanted to make is that the leveller movement didn't predate the war and it didn't cause the war. Um, there were no levellers eager to put down Charles I, and it's very important not to conflate the parliamentarians with the levellers. The levellers were a product of the war. They were actually the result of the experience of fighting in that war, fighting in Cromwell and Fairfax's New Model Army. Because the New Model Army, which was created from scratch, actually had to grub up the very ordinary people who didn't have a long tradition of serving in gentlemen's households. Those were the people that formulated these political ideas, basically sitting around the campfires at night. They were, by the way, a stunningly successful army, and they took great pride in their own success, great religious pride. And so for them, there was a mixture between this idea of them being the army of the saints and their own experience of fighting side by side, mm. hand in hand, back to back, and that experience was what formed their political views and their ability to value one another. Mm. So. I want to pick up this, this theme of the levellers because quite a, a significant part of the play is a reenactment, I mean, with some dramatic licence, I think we would say, of the Putney debates of yeah. 1647, which you've referred to. Love that part of the um, play. And uh, the Putney debates were uh, where the, the commanders and soldiers together mm. of the New Model Army debated what we would probably now call the future constitutional arrangements uh, of, the, uh, of England. Absolutely. And particularly debated the Leveller Manifesto, an agreement of the people. Yeah. Um, which was an extraordinary document yeah. to modernise. It called for a universal male franchise, not a universal franchise, a universal male franchise, freedom of conscience and religion, equality before the law. Yeah. Some of us might associate these ideas with Thomas Paine, late 18th century, 100 years later, or indeed the Chartists, mid-19th century. And here they were in the mid-17th century. Exactly. Where did these ideas come from, Diane, and who were the writers of them? Who were the authors? Well, what's really fascinating is that these ideas came from a mixture of high levels of self-education, autodidactic education, and common experience. Um, and it's that precise mixture of knowing a bit about the ancient Greeks, a bit about the Roman Republic. That was the education of every educated person, every educated man in this period, knowing that there had been alternative political systems and trying to think through what the possibilities for an alternative political system for England might look like, because that was what the war liberated them to do. 
In addition, there was the experience of being members of the typically Puritan radical independent churches. Now, these were churches that had said, we don't want bishops because bishops are just another kind of peer. They're just lackeys to the king. We don't want vicars because they're just posh blokes with degrees from Oxford and Cambridge. And they don't particularly speak in the power of the spirit. They're just people who can speak in Latin and who cares about that. So in throwing off those church governors, it gave them a powerful sense that they were able to make their own choices, better choices. So they elected what were called lecturers, people like us really, um, to come and talk to them and do sermons and preach the gospel to them because they felt that particular lecturers spoke in the power of the spirit and that not all clergymen with higher degrees did. And that political experience of making those decisions together, making those choices together, led them to translate those experiences into the political sphere. That plus the army, as I said. And the, and the key writer of, the, of the, um, the Level of Manifesto was a guy called John Lilburn. Mm. And John, you've recently organised a conference, didn't you? A 400th mm. anniversary conference yeah. about John mm. Lilburn. You want to try and resurrect him as a, as a political figure. What, what makes Lilburn and the Levelers so significant today? Well, I, I think that there are a number of absolutely key political ideas, which, as we discussed, are still relevant today. But if we were to move beyond those, I'd say what the levellers represent, and, and Dan's right, they were always a minority, even within the parliamentary, uh, parliamentary camp, but they did mark um, a kind of organised radical politics for the first time that was directing its appeal to a popular audience. And the way in which they did this was through the dramatic and revolutionary use of print. Yeah. They weren't the first people or the only people to be using print, but for these purposes, systematically, over a period of critical years in the revolution, they produced pamphlets, books, petitions, broadsides on an extraordinary scale and mobilised them popular demonstrations to support their presentation to Parliament. So anything that you're doing, if you're involved in any kind of campaign today, petitions to Parliament, petitioning on the street, producing leaflets. The levellers were the people who yeah. first did this as a kind of radical popular, popular movement. Lilburn, uh, and, and this is the other thing I guess about them as a movement, Lilburn is the best known, but they were a collective, a loose collective with a popular base, and we're only now beginning to learn about some of the people that were in the kind of second rank of their leadership, but they were an extraordinary group of people. Mm. The, the printer, Richard uh, Overton, yes. uh, is a fantastic polemicist. And his wife, Mary. Uh, and and <laughs> Catherine Chidley, and her son, Samuel Chidley, who became yeah. the treasurer of the movement because they, they built up ward organisation and people paid dues to them. So a lot mm. of what we think of about as modern politics, movement politics, popular politics, Politics, that started right here in this revolution. Yeah, and, the, exactly right. and the pamphlet was the Twitter of its day. This was the social media. Well, it got around. This These is pamphlets a, got around. Yeah. This, is a very interesting, this is a very interesting thing because the Levellers were a radical political project using a relatively historically new uh, technology for dramatic popular purposes, and yeah. that is an echo with what's happening now. I mean, if you, 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 in a way that you know, the internet isn't new. This was something that was there, you know, in invention terms, in kind of Caxton terms, yeah. was there 
here in the in the six, in the sixties, developed in the war, but then it explodes recently and is used massively now. Mm. And that, if you want to think about the print revolution yeah. and how the level has used it, this is a very good modern parallel. Yeah, exactly right. Because it was virtually impossible for the government to control the printing press, just as it's very difficult to shut down every computer in a country. Um, basically, a printing press in this period wasn't very much bigger than an old-style desktop computer, so you could take it from house to house, and that's what the levelers did. So people like Mary Overton, the wife of Richard Ovenden that we were just hearing about, when Richard got put in jail for being a leveller, Mary kept on turning out the pamphlets in her front room from this press, just as radical people in the period when the Berlin Wall came down were doing in Eastern Europe. And it was impossible for governments to silence all of them. They could silence some of them. Um, the reason the press was so important in this period is well worth remembering is that when Charles flees London, one of the first things that Parliament does is reduces the level of censorship, reduces, lifts the controls on the presses. And that just leads to this fantastic outflowing of political thinking, political speaking, and political debate within the press. And even the Restoration Government can't really turn the clock back fully on that, though God knows they do try. Um, so this is this is um, this is the pol political movement making uh, political demands. The levellers. There's another famous group which is represented in the play, who are the diggers, and the diggers had a more economic agenda. They um, believed in self-sufficient agricultural communes as a way of overcoming poverty and and the unemployment that was then rife. And they tried to establish several communities of this kind. Yeah. Who were they, Diane? The diggers, and how significant were they at the time? Well. The diggers who called themselves the true levellers, in fact, which is kind of interesting in relation to your mm. economic argument, I think, John. Um, the, the diggers were another very small minority movement, but highly significant symbolically and very much uh, frightened the ruling class of their time. What they did, basically, was took over areas of common land, put them under the plough and tried to use them to raise crops. Um, now, in a way, their leader, who's a lovely man called Gerard Winstanley, um, was a city boy, actually. Um, in fact, he was a trained draper. Um, fascinatingly, his uh, master in the trade was a woman. Um, so interestingly, you know, he was actually subordinate as an apprentice to a woman. Um, but he came from that craftsman artisan class that also produced thinkers like John Bunyan. Um, and what was really interesting about him was that his plan was actually to try to feed the people. Now, this was the big issue in the 1650s because 10 years of civil war had obviously meant that the subsistence, relatively subsistence-based economy of early modern England had fallen over like a sick camel. Um, and there was widespread hunger, really widespread. It was impossible to feed the standing army. It was impossible to maintain any kind of trans transportation of food. Grain crops failed in the field because we're still in the little ice age period. And so for all those reasons, their goal was to increase the amount of agricultural land. However, I have a bad thing to say about the diggers. And that is, you can really tell that Winstanley was a city boy because in fact, the first area they took over wasn't a hunting forest. The two kinds of forest in this period. Forest doesn't mean a place with trees. It means a place where nobody's growing anything or pasturing any animals. The first forest area that they tried to take over wasn't a hunting forest belonging to Mr. Posh. It was actually a forest common. These were relatively 
relatively rare, but forest commons were very important to the communities that depended on them. And it was, in fact, the community of rural, ordinary people who rose up against the diggers in the first instance and not a bunch of posh people because their livelihood was threatened. Forest commons are really important to people in terms of providing fuel. The, the goal is that you can gather firewood and by gathering firewood you can bake bread, etc. So it was actually the ordinary people of the surrounding villages that initially drove the diggers off and not the landlords. Yeah, I, th I think the thing about the diggers is you've got to get the chronology right because um, the levellers are part of the movement which makes the revolution. Uh, in fact, I would say even though they were a minority in, in 1648, the revolution's in big trouble. There's a popular mobilisation to bring the king back to London to as one of the petitions from the soldiers that were against this from Ireton's regiment say that they're aiming at the re-enthroning of the king with all his powers. And at that point, the levellers, quite deliberately and strategically, make a political block with Cromwell and Ireton and push through the revolution to the execution uh, of the king, certainly to, towards Pride's Purge, even though they didn't get out of that what they wanted to. So they're mm -hmm. a practical, I would say, small but essential part of making that revolution succeed. The diggers and the other groups, the millenarian groups, the ranters mm -hmm. and so forth, are a reaction to what has happened after the execution of the king in January 1649. They start in April, I think, mm. 1649. Mm. And it's almost as if what's happened is as soon as the, the revolution has reached its crescendo, the king has been executed, radicals' hopes kind of hit the buffers. Mm. And, the and the diggers are a, a, a very tiny group of people, and they're mm. part of that broader radical milieu where it's almost as if as the revolution hits the buffers, the imaginative sparks of what might be shower forward. Yeah. And one of those was to resolve the, the, the contradiction between democracy and property by saying, listen, until property is held in common, we won't have democracy. Yeah. Now that idea is part of the massive radical heritage of it. But at that point, it was only an idea. It wasn't really a big movement, and it didn't really affect the course of the revolution mm. in the way that the levelers did. But that idea, John, is that then did carry forward. The idea mm. carried forward. The idea of self-sufficient production, of <laughs> the workers, in this case, the agricultural workers, taking control of their, the land. And, and it became, in the modern era, what we might describe as communism. And yet... Those ideas have really been defeated now, haven't they? I mean, even communists don't really believe in communes anymore, do they? Well, I think one of the in interesting things is that uh, no matter how many times that idea is defeated, so long as that contradiction exists in the society between popular democracy and private property, it keeps getting reborn. It keeps getting reassembled in different forms, different ways of expressing it, but the fundamental thought that until we have economic democracy as well as political democracy, we won't really even have true political democracy. That idea, no matter how many times it derails, no matter how many times it's suppressed or driven down, uh, re-arises again. I mean, after all, we, we've just lived in our very recent lifetimes through the Arab revolutions. They raised that question again. They, many of them were defeated, except in Tunisia, but they raised that question again. And I don't think that can finally ever be, ever be dealt with until the, the conditions that give rise to it are addressed. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting, but I think it is worth flagging up that actually you could just as well say that the diggers are the ancestors of um, 20th century movements that we might be less enthusiastic about. Um, the diggers look awfully like distributivism. To me, this is the idea that everyone would be happy if they had a small plot of land of their own and went away and worked it. And I mean, that's very influential, unfortunately, on middle European fascism. And you're thinking particular of particularly of Hitler and Lebensraum. Winstanley's model for common property is really common land in the sense of the village green as a common, where everyone could, you know, pasture their pig and have a few chickens and geese roaming around. It's not really an idea about the common redistribution of all wealth. And I think it's fair to say that that idea never really struck the diggers. They just felt that there was lots of land that was being wasted when it could be used to grow crops. And that's really a separate issue. Um, the other thing is that that ideal of self-sufficiency that you mentioned, that's a very common ideal throughout this period. That's a common ideal in Shakespeare's England. The idea that each individual person has their own household and that their own household makes the goods and foods and stuffs that they need to live and you don't buy anything in. You just raise your own food, you process your own food, you cook your own food, you eat your own food. That's a very, very common middle-class idea. Whose modern incarnation is in, green, in the Green Movement. Yes, which has exactly. A, yeah. Which has a very strong idea of self-sufficiency and that we shouldn't be so dependent on global markets and, and so yeah. on, which, uh, which would arise. It, where you're, John, making the distinction between that self-sufficiency movement and the wider, in a sense, the broader concept of, of economic rights and sort of, mm. of having the power over your own labour and so mm. on, which became bigger. Mm. What I wanted, I suppose, then, then to come to is, is what happened to these movements. You've alluded mm. to it a little bit, mm. but um, they came to a, a, not a fantastic end, I think, uh, you would have mm. to say. The victor of the Civil War wasn't Gerard Winstanley mm. or indeed John Lilburn, it was Oliver Cromwell. Mm. And mm. Oliver Cromwell was not really a radical, was he? Oh, he was. Okay, how many people here would like to go outside and announce that they think it would be a good idea to kill the monarch? <laughs> Do you think that would sound a bit radical, were you to say it? Because my sense is that it would, and that actually it's still a capital crime to say that and to call for the death of the monarch. So I think it's quite ironic that people say, oh, Cromwell wasn't very mm. radical. Um, actually, he was taking a stupendous risk with his future. But what did he do with the diggers and the levellers and in Ireland and so on? You know why I'm well, asking that question. I do know why you're asking it. And I want to say one thing and in his defence, because I think Cromwell gets a bad rap. It's not true that he cancelled Christmas. Um, it really isn't. That was, it was, that was Islington Council, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, actually. It was a parliamentary subcommittee, that most joyless of all institutions. had nothing to do with him at all. He wasn't so even diff, on diff, the committee. Diff, diff, oh, please let me. Yeah. He, because actually what was awesome about the Putney House debates, as well as the articulations of people like Rain Burris saying the poorest he hath a life to live as much as the greatest he, the thing is that Cromwell and Ireton could have just stood the army agitators up against a wall and shot the lot of them. It would have been completely within their power to do that. And they probably could have, it's probably what nine out of 10 people would have done. But the thing is that Cromwell and Ireton actually believed that it was possible to reason with these people. That's a way of saying they thought they were going to win the argument, of course, but they did think it was worth having an actual argument rather than just you know, rounding up these people saying, these people are all off their rockers, let's just lock them up in Bedlam. They could have done that and they didn't. So that's what I would say in his defence. They're different wings of the revolutionary camp, of the parliamentary camp. And all the way through Lilburn and Cromwell's uh, careers, they're sometimes in alliance and sometimes in opposition, even at the, if at the end, where Cromwell really says the revolution goes this far, but no further, and Lilburn says, 
this revolution should go further. That's the story everybody knows. Mm. But the story beforehand is of continuing uh, co cooperation and conflict. Mm. So when John Lilburn is already in jail before the, uh, before the revolution starts, the new MP in the long parliament who stands up to make his first speech and says, John Lilburn must be freed, is Oliver Cromwell. Yeah. Okay. Um, when Oliver Cromwell wants a reliable figure in the army to go up against the conservative elements in the Presbyterian leadership, who's he allied with? John Lilburn. Yeah. When John Lilburn is in jail by Oliver Cromwell, or Cromwell's dominance, in the, and he's freed in that final moment where they have to confront the, the last attempt to re-enthrone the crown, Lilburn says uh, to Cromwell, I will never strike you when you are low. I will only strike you when you are high. Mm -hmm. So this is a much more complex um, interaction within the revolutionary camp about how far the revolution, uh, how far the revolution will, will go. And, uh, and th this, this sounds quite modern, because mm. what you're describing is a broad church, is a, a phrase that would be used modern, <laughs> of a movement which has different wings, fighting for a common goal, and as long as you're fighting for the same goal, that you're on the same side, but you may then split. And mm. people might recognise the Labour Party as being uh, of this, not quite as revolutionary, uh, uh, um, but of having different wings. And a Tony Benn figure, who was part of the Labour government, worked with Harold Wilson, Jim Callaghan, and then said, no, that you've, gone, you've, you've stopped the revolution, I would want to go further. Is that a fair comparison, or is that a rather uh, 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 not, really, not really accurate? Well, I would say that... Um, the, the point where it breaks down is that um, these are debates within a revolutionary movement and nobody's ever really accused the Labour Party of being, of being that. Mm -hmm. um, but they are politics in a broad movement like that. I think that's absolutely right. And if anybody who's ever worked in, in a movement like that knows this, understands this process, instinctively will recognise this forging of alliances for particular purposes. As I say, at that, mo that critical moment in 1848, Arton, he just can't 16, see a way 1648. forward. 1648. <laughs> he just can't see a way forward. He, resi he resigns from the army and mm. Lilburn says it's a pretended resignation. Mm. But they have to form a block in order to not to be defeated by the enemy. Yeah. You know, as, as Sexby says in the debates, he will come and, and, and hang, us, hang us all. The king yeah. will come and hang us all. Yeah. And this dynamic within the, within the revolution forces the bloc to, to solidify. And that's, that's a politics which anybody who's been in an opposition movement of any kind will recognise that process. Yeah. Totally, that's human nature. I would say it's got nothing to do with being in a revolutionary movement. You, know, you can get that sort of thing happening, you know, organising a flower show, really. Um, <laughs> but I'd also say, um, for what it's worth, that if it wasn't for Oliver Cromwell, we probably wouldn't have heard of people like Rainborough or even Lilburn or Overton. In other words, if they hadn't been politically successful, at least for the time that they were politically successful, there's a good chance that all this would have disappeared. Because do you know what? Nobody knew about the Putney House debates until mm. halfway through the 19th mm. century. So any 18th century of the civil, history of the Civil War was written without reference mm. to them. It was only when one man's shorthand note descriptions of what had been said were unearthed that people even realized that this enormously important event had happened. Mm. Nonetheless, the ideas had somehow filtered through, through the works of mostly more moderate folk, people like Milton, who was Cromwell's Latin mm. secretary, people like the American founding fathers who really drew on these ideas. Mm. He spoke about Thomas Paine, another important mm. figure who actually did know about these conversations. But we know about them because they were partially successful. If they'd completely failed, if they'd, you know, if they'd dropped the ball mm. in 1648, we wouldn't mm. be having yes. this conversation Absolutely. now.
the uh, stage manager is very keen to clear us <laughs> off. Um, uh, enjoy the show, those of you who are coming uh, to the performance tonight. Can I thank John and Diane very much and to thank you also for the audience. Thank you. <laughs>